Dear friends of Jesus Christ, perceiving distance in space and time is sometimes a hard thing to judge. The Olympic Mountains, for instance, look pretty close when you're driving into town on the Pat Bay Highway. But when you make it all the way down to sea level, you realize just how far away those mountains are. Getting an accurate read on distance is tricky. This is true spatially and temporally, but it's also true with our life with God as we wait for his return. The Lord is near, writes Paul. The Lord is close by. He's coming soon. I think it's clear from the context that Paul isn't just talking about that close feeling we sometimes get in our relationship with Jesus. That kind of nearness is real too. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus near when we gather in his name. But what Paul is talking about here is something different. He's talking about the day of the Lord's return. That day when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Let your gentleness be evident to all, says Paul. The day of Christ's return draws near. Paul wrote those words some 2,000 years ago. Generations of Christians have come and gone since then. For generations, Christians have been scanning the horizon, waiting for Christ to return. Was Paul wrong to say that the Lord was near? That's what it looks like from our perspective. But what does it look like from God's perspective? From his perspective, Paul's words are true and remain true for us Christians today. You see, in the long drama of history, we are in the last act. We live between the time of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And, the, and between, uh, between that significant moment and Christ's return, we're in the last days We're in that time between the resurrection and the return. This is the last act of history. And as last act Christians, it's true each and every day, each and every year, that the Lord is near. The next act of God, the curtain call, is the return of Christ and the city of God. So what does it mean for us as actors in the last act of history? What's the church's role at this stage in God's drama of salvation. Well, I think that Paul lays out some important points on just this to conclude his letter to the church in Philippi. These final exhortations and encouragements help us to find our bearings in the times and the time that God has given us to live. So I'll just walk through the passage this morning and we'll think about how each part can help us think about how we are to live in the knowledge that the Lord is near. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This point really uh, wraps up what Paul was talking about last week. Chapter 3 ends with Paul encouraging the church to press on in the faith taking hold of all that for which Christ Jesus took hold of them. Paul's firm belief is that the church's role in the present, in the world, in this time and place, is to live in the power of Christ's victory and to model the ways of God's kingdom as we wait for Jesus to return. This is going to involve suffering. As we follow Jesus in the world, we will know Jesus in his sufferings, 
But that's okay, for this current age is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we will be raised with Jesus when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. So when Paul says, stand firm in this, that's what he's talking about. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm for what you believe. Hold on to what Christ Jesus has promised and what he has said. Philippi was an an easy place to be a follower of Jesus. Philippi was loyal to a different Lord. They They were loyal to the emperor, to Caesar. And if you wanted to fit in in Philippi, Philippi, and be, accept, be an acceptable member of society, well, then you uh, gave homage to Caesar. It's unlikely that the Christians in Philippi experienced physical persecution, persecution because of their refusal to bow to Caesar. But the pressure to conform was huge, and the costs of following Jesus were real. I mean, imagine being in business. Imagine having a shop on, on the main street. And then imagine that word got out that you had become a follower of Jesus and that you wouldn't bow a knee to Caesar. In a highly relational society, this would probably reduce your customer base by over 50%. People might not throw rocks through the windows of your shop, but they'd stop frequenting your store. Following Jesus hurt the bottom line. Things are a little different for us here in Canada Most of the time, we don't feel ostracized from civic life because of our Christian commitments. But sometimes it feels like things are changing and the pressure to conform is mounting. What does courageous, winsome Christian witness look like at a time like this? How can we too stand firm in the Lord during these days? The gospel will always encounter opposition in the world. Jesus has told us that much. In this world, you will have trouble. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. And one of the church's main roles as God's last act people is simply to stand firm in the truth as we await the return of the king. And one of the ways we can stand firm together is by modeling Christ's way in our life together. And here's where Paul gets very specific with a specific situation in Philippi. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche, continues Paul, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. It's fairly rare for Paul to name names in his letters. Uh, most of the time he does this actually when he loves people very much. He'll, he'll name them. Say hi to so-and-so. Greet that person. I long for that person. I love that person, right? So he, he names the people that he loves. You can imagine, though, the embarrassment that Yodia and Syntyche must have felt when they heard their names read aloud in the church the Sunday that Paul's letter was read. But Paul doesn't name them to embarrass them. Rather, he draws attention to these sisters because he loves them, and he wants to see them come to have the same mind as Christ Jesus. It's likely that Judea and Syntyche were leaders of some sort in the church. We know that Macedonia um, had a lot of prominent women, and that uh, many of the first converts to the way of Jesus in Philippi were women. 
So likely they had positions of leadership in some way in the church. So maybe there's a conflict. We don't know what's going on. There's some sort of disagreement happening between these two women. Paul doesn't have to name the conflict, what it is, because everyone in the church knows what's going on and that there's trouble between Yudia and Syntyche. So he, he speaks to them, and whatever the situation was, he also doesn't feel the need to take sides, right? I side with this person, or I side with that person. Clearly, the gospel was not at stake in this conflict. What was needed was not correction, but mediation. So Paul enlists the help of his trusted companion, and he pleads with these two women, his co-workers in the gospel, to be of the same mind. We remember that language, be of the same mind, from chapter 2, where Paul encourages the whole community to have the same mind as Jesus Christ. You know, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He was high and lifted up, but he lowered himself. He became a servant. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Paul says, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Be servants to one another. Look to the interests of the others. It's very easy to get locked into arguments in the church. People jostle for position. Factions form. Splinters happen. And when that happens, our witness in the world, it it can be impacted in a negative way. It's important, of course, for the church of all times and places to stand firm in the truth, to remain true to the teachings of Christ, But if our life together does not reflect the message and the Savior we proclaim, then our witness starts to lose its integrity. May God's last act people be known for their self-sacrificial love and their ability to work through conflict in a Christ-like way. And may we also be known for our joyful, gentle, and non-anxious way of life. This is a famous passage here, and we'll read it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. To rejoice is to give voice to the joy that's within. People who rejoice are people who are filled with joy. For Christians, our joy is rooted in our relationship with the Lord and all the blessings that we have in Him. Paul Paul modeled this joy-filled witness when he was church planting in Philippi. You remember the occasion when he and Silas were thrown into prison. And at midnight, they were found in chains, singing songs and praying prayers. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's not always easy to be bubbling over with joy all the time. Life can be very challenging, distressing. But it's also true that there's almost always something to be thankful for, especially in the Lord. There's creation and salvation. There's the Spirit who ministers within and the hope of glory to come. There's the comfort in knowing that He who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus' return. You know, on Friday, uh, I attended Anna Vanacker's funeral here at church. And you know what happened at that funeral? We remembered, of course, Anna's life and the impact she had on us. We heard uh, scripture being read, but we also sang. We sang in the face of death. We sang songs of hope. We sang when peace like a river. And we could sing. We could sing together in the face of death and even with joy, even through our tears sometimes because we know that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus not even death. And so when we gather at one of the saddest times really in in our life together when someone passes away, we still sing. We rejoice in the Lord for there is hope still. Yes, death hurts. Yes, it leaves us feeling wounded and worn at times. But nevertheless, even in their grief, we can sing, it is well with my soul. This is not the power of us and our resolve. This is the power of Christ in us. And because we're secure in Him, there's no need to be reactive in the world, no need to act like a cornered animal when things don't go our way. I love this little statement that Paul throws in. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What he means here is probably a gentle forbearance the ability to suffer ridicule with grace, the ability to return a kind word after receiving a nasty word. What Paul means here is very similar to what Peter said of Jesus in 1 Peter. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's gentle forbearance in the world. Uh, A good example of this in the history of the church is the example of Polycarp. Polycarp was a a leader in the early church, the bishop of Smyrna. He was martyred for his faith. And when the soldiers came to arrest him, he opened the door and he said, would you like to come up for supper? He asked for a little time so that he could pray. They granted that to him. But I love that. Would you like to come up for supper? These people were coming to take him away. He knew what was happening. He knew he was going to be martyred for his faith. But he still invited them. Would you like to come up for supper? What gives a man that kind of strength? What gives somebody the ability to stand firm with that gentleness when facing his own death? Polycarp entrusted his life to him who judges justly. And it's that that enables us to face opposition with gentleness. Knowing God is near also enables us and empowers us to live a non-anxious life. This quality belongs to the life of God's last, uh, last act people too. Another famous passage. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a beautiful exchange found in this this encouragement to pray. We give God our worries, and God gives us his peace. 
Anxiety is a common experience, and it's a growing problem in North America for various reasons. We, have, we worry about a lot of things. We worry about money, career, family, school. We fear missing out. We want to be liked. We worry about fitting in. The weight that some of us carry on a daily basis is just staggering, the weight of worry. Paul's words here, here seem almost unrealistic. Do not be anxious about anything, anything. I could get, do not be anxious about most things, okay, but anything. And it seems almost trite to say, just take it to the Lord in prayer. I mean, if, if I did that pastorally every time someone came up to me with worries and just said, oh, take it to the Lord in prayer, you know, like, it seems a little, a little trite. But it's also very true in a deep way, too. You know, for years I believed in my head that God cares for me, that he watches over me like a father. But I don't know how specific I ever got in my prayers. They were always general. And I was always trying to work through my problems on my own power, as if God didn't have much care or concern for the things of my life. But now that my life is endlessly complex, and there's a lot more outside of my control, I find myself praying more often and more specifically. And I will say anecdotally that when combined with faith in God's goodness, this taking it to the Lord in prayer, it makes a big difference. It doesn't, it's not like the anxiety just whooshes away and you're like, oh, I'm as light as a bird, you know, I can just fly away. It's not like that. But there is this exchange that takes place. And it happens most often and when I get really concrete about what's worrying me. And sometimes that's actually hard to get to the bottom of, right? Because sometimes we're worried and we're not always sure what exactly it is. So I journal. I journal my way through these fears and these anxieties. Try to name as clearly as I can what it is that's plaguing me. Once I get down to what I think is the clearest way to say it, say it out loud. And I say, Lord, I give this to you. And there is a lightness. There's an exchange that takes place slowly. I give God my worries. He gives me his peace. No request is too big or too small. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The foundation of this is that God is totally trustworthy and totally caring. His beloved have his ear. He may not handle our anxious prayers as we wish him to, but what a gift to be able to hand over the burden and to not carry it alone. We give God our worries, he gives us his peace, and that peace then guards us. It stands sentinel over our hearts. When the worry warriors come knocking and they attack, which they do, I can go back to my prayer journal. I can name the fear again. I say, I gave this to the Lord. You can take it up with him, not me. God's last act people are characterized by joy, gentleness, 
prayer and peace. And finally, God's last act people will be a discerning community, discerners of what is good. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things and what you learned and received and heard and saw in me. Do these things and the peace of God will be with you. At a glance, it seems like Paul is simply encouraging the church in Philippi to think noble thoughts, to think about good and excellent things, to let their minds be occupied by what is praiseworthy as opposed to what is detestable or, or ugly in some ways. And there's some truth to that. Um, Christians, you know, thinking noble thoughts, thinking about excellent things, there's, there's some good in that. But Bible scholar Gordon Fee argues that Paul's point here is slightly different than just thinking good thoughts. He's not asking the church to think good things, but to be discerners of the good in the world. So in the marketplace, in education, in family, in society, what is just, what is pure, what is praiseworthy, what is lovely, what is good? Discern these things. I think about Lydia, the first convert to the way of Jesus in Philippi. She was a businesswoman, a dealer in purple cloth. I wonder what changed in her business practices after her conversion, right? How did she move from thinking about how to handle herself as a businesswoman? Start to think about, you start to think about things differently. What's praiseworthy? What's excellent? What fits with my new identity in Christ? What about my old way of dealing with customers can I continue doing? What about my old way of dealing with customers do I have to leave behind? What is pure? What is just? These questions are important to ask as we go about our work in the world. And what about the jailer that converted to the way of Jesus after he was evangelized to by Paul? He went through a radical uh, a radical change in his life. But then I imagine he went back to work as a prison guard in a Roman jail. I wonder what changed. I wonder how he handled his position beforehand. And after Christ, I wonder how he looked back on that. Like, this is what I'm going to continue doing. This is what fits. And this is what I need to let go of. This is what is just, or this is what is just, that I will not do that anymore. I won't participate as a prison guard like that anymore. So getting this discernment going as we live in the world. Those of you who study at Camosun College or UVic, you have to do this discernment work every day in class. Every day as you sit and listen to your professor or read your test textbook, you have to ask yourself, what am I learning today that overlaps? There is, there is confluence between what I'm learning and the values of the kingdom of God. And where is their dissonance? I can agree with my professor on this point, but I don't agree with him or her on that point. We have to discern what is true, what is just, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. We all have to live in this world and, and reckon with it. And there's parts of our culture that 
fit really well with the values of the kingdom of God. But there's parts of our culture that, no, we can't go that direction. We can't participate in that. If something is lovely, excellent, just, true, celebrate it. But if it's ugly, shoddy, unjust, false, reject it. Paul says, follow me in this. I've taught you things. I've modeled things among you. Follow me as we seek to conform our living to the pattern Christ set for us. Another example, I had a university professor um, when I was in university, and he was really concerned about the university party scene. And he would always say, parties are so good. It's such an important part about our life together to celebrate things, to celebrate accomplishments, to celebrate friendships, to celebrate birthdays. We should be having parties like just awesome as Christians. But one line he drew, and I found this really helpful, his rule about parties, especially college parties, was this. Never go to a party where people are drinking cheap beer out of a plastic cup. Right? That's an ugly party. The purpose of that party is not celebration of something good. The purpose is drunkenness. Cheap beer out of a plastic cup. Whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, discern these things. Hold everything up to the light of the gospel. If it, if it reflects the gospel, join in and celebrate. If it does not, step away, ignore May God's last act people be known for their noble way of thinking and acting in the world. Dear brothers and sisters in Victoria, the Lord is near. Let us stand firm together in the faith, having the same mind as Christ Jesus. May we rejoice in the Lord always, even at funerals, even in times of great need. May our gentle forbearance be evident to all. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your petitions to God. And the peace of Christ that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, let us discern together what is good and true, lovely, respectable, Excellent. Whatever conforms to God's will for the world, discern these things, celebrate them. Because one day when Christ returns, all that will be left are these things. And as you live into all this, the peace of God will come to be with us. The peace of God will fill us. Let's live together in that peace. Amen.